welcome to Live Your Own Way with me, Lucy Gleason Interiors, chatting homes, life and inspiration with my very special guests. This week, I'm having a lovely chat with best-selling author Sally Coulthard about her new book, Biophilia, as it's a fascinating subject. When I first heard the word, I thought it was just about adding plants in the home, but it is so much more than that. Sally has written 22 books in total and also writes monthly for Country Living, so she's a fountain of knowledge. Hello, Sally, how are you? I'm very well, Lucy, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How's your day shaping up today? Are you writing? I am. I'm, I'm back in my little shed studio because uh, this afternoon I'm going to do a bit of book writing and I'm also just finishing uh, the last touches to a little video that I've made for Country Living. I write their, their column, um, A Good Life in the Country, and we've not been able to do our Country Living fairs this year, which has been really sad. So actually, but one of the nice things is we can kind of do little videos from home just so... So that's what I've been doing, and I'm just kind of editing that together at the moment. So busy afternoon, yeah. Yeah, very busy. Have you always lived in? I know you went to um, to university in Oxford, but have you always lived in the countryside? I, I haven't actually. Well, I've kind of lived in in almost kind of every different sort of circumstance you can really. So um, without going to loads of boring detail, but I am um, I was born and brought up um, in a place called Carveley, which is just on the edge of Leeds, and. That what that used it used to be a, a village and then um, sort of became a suburb. So I had quite a sort of suburban childhood, but we were right on the edge of really beautiful countryside, and so it wasn't difficult to kind of escape into the countryside there. And and then lived in Oxford, like you say, which was which was a really lovely introduction to kind of uh, town life. And then went to London for six or seven years. Um, and that was kind of exciting, but um, I don't think city life really suited me. And then finally, back in the countryside, back in the Yorkshire countryside, where I feel really at home, actually. Yeah. So your um, interest in, in people and nature um, obviously started quite young. Because you, you studied archaeology and anthropology, didn't you? I, I did, and it, it's funny, isn't it, how you how you kind of end up doing things um, for sort of different reasons, and and, and archaeology and anthropology was was not something that I kind of chose because I wanted to be an archaeologist or an anthropologist but like you say that it was it was more a kind of culmination of all the things that I was interested in like people and society and nature and how people organize their homes and their lives and and that kind of thing but I also um, I'm really interested in kind of material, what they call material culture. So, you know, the artifacts that people leave behind or how objects have stories to tell. Um, and, and funny enough, we were just chatting about you interviewing Dominic from the repair shop. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, one of the things I really love about that show is the fact that it's, it, it shows you how resonant objects become for people and that, and that things have more weight than just kind of they're not just things they they represent feelings and memories and all that kind of stuff and so and so archaeanth or archaeology and anthropology I should say sorry sort of brought together all those kind of interests it's just basically about people really um and so that yeah. was, that was fascinating 
And was it always your intention to be an author when you were studying? No, not at all. I I, I honestly mm-hmm. didn't have a clue and <laughs> still, <laughs> still feel like I don't really have a clue what I'm doing. And I'm kind of making it up as I, as I go along. Um, I've always liked writing, um, but I, I've also always really enjoyed um creating things and I was I was a big sort of drawer and crafter when I was little and I always used to be sort of sticking things together and making little models and and, and stuff so there's always been that kind of tussle um between choosing a kind of academic route to go down or doing something yeah. that was kind of creative and, and and that kind of thing and 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 I've, I found that it was really difficult to kind of find a normal career that combined those two because um, you kind of push down one avenue aren't you when you when you're mm. at school um but luckily I've sort of managed to kind of carve out a career where although you know a lot of it is to do with writing there is a lot of creativity in it especially to do with kind of like when you're making a book you know all the sort of design elements and choosing illustrations and that kind of stuff which is really love a really lovely bit of the process yeah well, you've is everyone's supposed to have one book in them, but you've written over twenty. Oh God! So <laughs> it's a compulsion. I I like to think of myself as the as the uh, of the Barbara Cartland of the of the nonfiction world, lying <laughs> lying on a on a chaise long, kind of dictating my books to a you know. <laughs> uh, which which one came first? So um, the first book, and it's funny actually because Biophilia is kind of is kind of brought me back full circle. So the first book I ever wrote was called Pure Living and it was for BBC Books and it was written, it was a book that was exploring uh, the link between kind of chemicals or toxic chemicals and health in the home and right. it was it was not really kind of an area that was being kind of massively talked about um, at that point but I, the, I think it came out of also the fact that I w- I'd had ME for about oh. three, year- three years by that point because I, to- I used to work in television and, and basically left because I was really poorly. And so I was stuck mm-hmm. at home, back at my parents' house after, you know, being a- being away in London things. And I felt really ill and really under the weather. And I was reading all these kind of reports about, you know, things that are making us unhealthy in the home. And I sort of I, can't, I don't know, I kind of put two and two together, really, and wondered whether there were things in my environment or in my life and things that were that were not helping the process. And so that's where the book came out of. But I wanted it to be really kind of um, aspirational and and gorgeous and rather than being sort of a, a sort of dry um, academic read, because I think mm. the only way to get people on board with any kind of idea is to kind of make it attractive and make it, something that you'd want to do um and so yeah so that was that was the first book really so it was a it was a kind of beginning of a of a journey of of writing just kind of things that sort of in, writing about things that interested me okay I'm really interested in you uh, perhaps we can talk about it a bit later mm. about you having had ME because mm. I had a similar thing and that's Did when you? I sort of yeah changed mm. my lifestyle and I, I worked in TV as Did well really? so yeah. Very interesting. Well, I wonder if I've probably crook. <laughs> more than likely, more than likely. So, uh, jumping twenty books ahead, mm-hmm. um, and um, this year, mm. um, Biophilias has come out, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, what was the inspiration behind this particular book? So, it, so the idea of Biophilia, I suppose, has been kind of milling around in my head for maybe three or four years. Um, 
and I'd been reading an increasing amount of kind of research and news articles and things about the relationship between um, uh, the the natural world and um, health and well-being and whether there was some kind of disconnect between how we were arranging our cities and schools and homes and workplaces and all that kind of thing and and why and why we were feeling sort of um so ill at ease in our environment um and you know there's been loads of books like nature fix and things like that which have which have been real trailblazers which were sort of people writing about how healing nature has been for them um and so i wanted to kind of write something that combined my interests which is kind of home life and interiors and craft and that kind of stuff with with a kind of scientific look at what the research was about nature and health and that kind of thing um so that's where it came out of and, and you know I'm a massive believer in in the healing power of nature and I don't mean that in a kind of you know let's all hold hands and skip through the fields kind of approach <laughs> more more that just you know, being surrounded by fresh air and greenery and the rhythms of nature and all those kind of things tend to kind of make us feel calmer and better and less stressed and all that, because that's been my experience anyway. Yeah, because when people hear the word biofiller, I know I used to until I learned a bit more, um, they consider it just to be about plants, but it's so much more than that, isn't it? It, it really is. And I think the problem is, well, there's two, two problems really. One is that it's a bit of an odd word. And, yeah. and when I was talking to my publishers about this, initially, I think they were a bit reluctant to kind of even go with the word biophilia because mm. it was it doesn't really say what it is unless you know what the Latin definition of it is. You know, it's sort of something that doesn't kind of spring out at you. But I was and the Latin word, sorry, is it, the Latin is, means love of life. Is that right? Exactly so. Exactly so. Yeah. Um but I was sort of, you know, my argument was, you know, we didn't know what hygge meant and, and lagam and all these kind of phrases that have now become, or words that have become part of our design vocabulary. And that I thought that biophilia was something that people could kind of understand when they knew what it meant. Um, and so I was really insistent that we kind of, we, we, we kept with that, with that idea. But also that, um, you know, people have been talking about biophilia for, for, for decades, but it's, been in a quite a sort of um narrow field of interest so mainly kind of architecture um and cityscapes and and kind of civil architecture and stuff like that and it didn't it hasn't really kind of broken through into the mainstream um so I was really keen that kind of it became a sort of hopefully a sort of household term that people kind of you know can get on board with yeah, definitely. And it's not like just a conventional guidebook because of all the facts, um, although it's, it's really beautiful aesthetically. So was that your intention, just to make it more factual? D- definitely. So, you know, like I was saying before, you know, to get anyone on board with any kind of idea, I think it's really important for the, for the, for the book to kind of be engaging and also sort of a nice thing to hold and look at and have, and you know, and, and have as an object. And so... The designer who I worked with on the book is a lady called Helen Bratby, and and we've worked together on quite a few of of my books in the past. And, you know, we sat down in a pub in in London and sort of chatted it through, and I said to her, look, you know, I'd like something that's that's not a kind of conventional interior design book. I'd like it to be more kind of scrapbooky, but also a bit odd, you know, a bit kind of a mixture between a... A biological, you know, these kind of old biological posters and, Absolutely. and a bit kind of 
um, uh, a bit kind of natural history museum and a bit kind of designy and all, you know all these kind of funny sort of scraps I wanted to, and I, I wanted there to be old photographs and everything, just because it's you know we could have some fun with it because this, it, it wasn't it hadn't been done before and so we weren't kind of constrained by any you know the book didn't have to look a particular way so we could just have some you know have some fun with it really and and Helen's done an amazing job you know and we've had it's just gorgeous. It is. It is a beautiful book. Everything about it, just um, because I, I just read it recently, all the pages just feel lovely as well. It's really um, tactile. Well, do you know, it's, I mean, you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head because anyone that's kind of interested in design and would read Biophilia is interested in in every part of the book and not and not just what the words are. So things like the weight of paper that you use and the cover and the illustrations and the layout and the font and everything you have to kind of you can't patronize an audience that you know you have to make it every little bit detail appealing because you know the people that are reading the book are mass like like you are massively discerning about about good taste and things so so that's always something that we I kind of have in the back of my mind I would say also it's it's quite timeless in style and how you've written it as well it's a book that you could pick up in 10, 20 years and feel like it's just been written, which is quite special. Well, that's a, that's a really lovely thing to say. And, and, you know, it's, it is really difficult when you're writing a book that it, that to not, to not do anything that dates. And, and so things like photography, you know, if you, they can date really quickly, or if you kind of jump on a trend, you know, of, of a certain kind of doing it, designing it a certain way, it can soon kind of feel out of fashion um so I'm well I'm really pleased that's good that means that you know we've done a good job hopefully <laughs> oh yeah you definitely have and I love the, the color theory in the book as well about you know how different colors can make you feel a certain way especially you know just recently we've all been at home a lot and um, I think it'd be a really good reference book for people about you know they might feel uncomfortable in a room somehow but not be quite sure why yeah yeah you know color color theory is a really kind of interesting area because I'm really kind of conflicted about it because on one hand you know my sort of scientific approach to stuff there isn't a lot of proof behind a lot of color theory so you know people start thinking you know say things like oh reds are really energizing color but blues are really you know depressive color and that kind of thing and actually for the most part it's not true you know and and that there is very little research that kind of proves that certain colors have certain effects because most of the way that we relate to color um is because of our cultural background so you know you know for instance in in england you know red is red means certain things and can mean danger and that kind of thing but you know in say china or some of the far eastern countries red is a is a hugely kind of a color of kind of good fortune and and privilege and that kind of thing so so color is is tied up with lots of sort of different cultural associations however that said i think there are some kind of universal experiences of color especially with related to how strong they are so i, I write um in the book about kind of um using hues and tones differently and the fact that kind of pale colors create a different response than really sort of bright colors or dark colors um, you, you know, create a different a, a different reaction or a different feel than than other other kinds of shades and things. So, you know, there isn't there isn't any such thing as a kind of right or wrong color. It's more about kind of application of it, and it's also about how you 
how you use colors sort of sparingly so you know in our natural environment or you know we don't have masses and masses of bright color all the time we have you know a lot of kind of muted colors you know sky shades and 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 green shades and and earthy shades but we and color is used color color appears in kind of um small amounts but that's where it's really effective and so that's kind of something that I've talked about in the book it's just sort of you know not going absolutely bonkers with tons of bright color because it, it can make you feel really sort of overstimulated anyway sorry I'm waffling about color theory no it's interesting honestly you could talk about color all day to me oh, I'm well, yeah, very I'm, happy yeah, to. Do, you, do you find that that you know that there's a that you know color is it, it there's no sort of rules particularly but um, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, you just start off if, you, if you're particularly keen on a colour, start off with it and mm. try it out, see how you get on. And then mm. um, I think I, I heard you say somewhere else that your room is is a blue, completely blue and mm. mine is too. And it's so calming and relaxing. Yeah. I feel cocooned in it. Completely. So. Do you know, funnily enough, actually, only this week I've been redecorating my teenage daughter's bedroom because she's fed up with looking at the uh, looking at it and to start with I painted all four walls gray and instantly it felt oppressive it was too much because I don't really like doing feature walls and that kind of thing it's not my cup of tea um mm. but the moment we both stepped in the wall the room when it was kind of dry we thought oh god you know we've it's not it's not worked and so we we ended up repainting one of the walls uh, a kind of snowy white um and the whole feel of the room changed because the weighting of the different colors had changed and it was completely transformative it just shows you that you know that sometimes you've kind of just got to sort of use a really sort of instinctive approach to color and and and, and how it makes you feel at any particular time um definitely yeah. yeah um, I found it interesting, um, some of your facts in there, um, one of which was about mineral pigments lasting longer mm. in paints, you know, which is quite good to know as well. Well, I just, you know, I, I mean, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly a, a fan of Farron Ball paints over any others. You know, I think Little Green Paint Company and Bulma Paints, and there are loads of fantastic companies doing really high quality paints that have got really good high quality pigments in them. And, yeah. you know, I know some people sort of say, oh, yes, I choose a shade from, you know, the Fowler and Ball card, but then I get it mixed up in a, in a, in a you know, just a normal bog standard paint. And, mm. and but I just kind of, there's something about the way the kind of pigment and the flatness of the paint changes with the, the light through the day and stuff. That it just, I just don't think it's replicable in sort of cheaper paints. And also just kind of eco-friendly wise, you know, I want to buy paints that are not going to, you know, cause breathing problems and environmental problems and stuff later down the line. So, you know, I'm a massive believer in sort of, you know, spending a little bit more money and and getting something that's going to last. Yeah, yeah, I I feel the same, to be Mm. honest with you. So um, so moving on slightly, why do you um, think, from from having written this book, that we get more interested in nature as we get older? Because I certainly am. I'm becoming much more plant-friendly mm. and, you know, wanting to nurture plants more in the house as well. God, that's such a good question. Do you know, no one has ever asked me that before. Oh. And I've never really thought about it. But you're mm. absolutely you're absolutely right. Because <laughs> I remember <laughs> going around gardening centres when I was a kid being dragged around by my parents and thinking... God, this is boring. You know, how can anyone be interested in gardening and and things? 
I, I think the truth is that 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 uh, the relationship with nature changes as you get older. I don't necessarily think you get more interested. So when I was when I was little, and I'm seeing it in my the little I've got three girls, and and, and the two littlest are still little enough to be absolutely passionate about insects and little mini beasts and you know nature hunts and all that kind of stuff and they love growing seeds in the garden and that kind of thing and 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 that's how that's how they're engaged with nature on one level and they're really passionate about it and and then my my eldest daughter who's a teenager um she she likes nature but she's more interested in the kind of patterns and design element of it and um and then, you know, as you get older, maybe when you start owning your own property, you know, gardening becomes, and if you're lucky enough to have a nice garden, you know, a garden that you can kind of go out in. I think that's when you start to become interested in gardening and things. I don't know. It's a funny one, isn't it? And, and mm-hmm. you know, when you're a little kid, you don't really like being dragged around a, on a walk. But when you're older, you know, we love going on walks and things, my husband and I. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's, a really, it's, a, it's something I've never really sort of thought of. It's the gentleness of it, isn't it? I mean, I, maybe as you get older, you don't need the kind of bangs and whistles of of nightclubs and and stuff and that you get your kicks from, you know, walking in woodland and stuff. But I don't know, maybe that's yeah. me becoming old and yeah. sloshy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, honestly, I could walk all day, uh, especially in the last three or four months, you know, when we've been at yeah. home. I just I, I so look forward to our daily walk. Mm. I, it's really, you know, the fact that biophilia came out, pretty much the day we went into lockdown at first I thought oh no we know what a disaster for a for a book to come out the same but actually it was so timely because our relationship with 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 nature completely sort of has come into stark relief when you're when you're stuck indoors and and most people coming out of lockdown the first thing they've not wanted to do is kind of you know go on a mega shopping spree and things like that but actually what they were craving was going out for a really nice walk or going for a bike ride or going to the beach you know and and I understand that I understand why people sort of headed for the coast and stuff because they're just desperate for for outside time yeah yeah absolutely and the the other thing I was going to say to you I, I found really interesting about the book is you know you're you're um uh, talk about the screen times and mm. you know obviously that's vital and I'm not uh, probably the most popular mum because I whenever we have sleepovers here I take screens away at a certain time yeah. uh, in the evening um, but it's it's vital isn't it as well that we just get good sleep it's and that's easy. that's another aspect of biophilia completely I mean you know god there's I mean there's so many issues there there's you know sleep hygiene there's parental kind of uh, supervision of technology and things and I think it's really important as parents not to throw the bath out, the baby out with the bathwater. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I am a fan of technology and, and we use, to, I mean, I use technology loads in my work and, and, and all my children have access to iPads um, because of the kind of creative potential of technology and also, you know, you know, in terms of entertainment and, and learning and stuff, it's been invaluable in lockdown. Yeah. But that, but there is there isn't much interaction that goes on often with technology in a way that when you know you're playing outside or playing with friends and stuff, you know it's a different kind of learning and and things. So you're dead right to to limit screen time and also the fact that you know so much of technology is massively stimulating and and that's it's, you know that's the point of it. It is supposed to be stimulating, but you don't want to be you don't want to be buzzing when you're trying to go to sleep. So there is a big section in the book about the relationship between 
um, the kind of light that technology throws out, the sort of blue spectrum of light and 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 how it how it inhibits certain types of you know sleep patterns and and the fact that you know sleep health is affected by technology, but it's also affected by loads of other things as well. You know, to mm-hmm. stress and I think kids are kids are under a lot of pressure these days as well um, and spend a lot of time indoors and you know there was that research piece of research that showed that kids spend less time outdoors than than prisoners do which is unbelievable you know it's unbelievable in this day and age that we we don't allow our children to have access to to outside spaces so yeah there's a lots of it, there's a lot of threads running through that i just think your book i know i've already said it but it's just there's so much information there it's a handbook mm. but it's honestly there is i feel like i know so much about biophilia now that I didn't. Oh, that's good. So, well, jo- it's, heck, job done. Job done. Up. It's a. It's, it, honestly, it is such a brilliant book, and I really mean that. And oh, I, I'm you. quite sort of picky about what I read, but I couldn't put it down. And it's it's something, you know, I'll pick up again many times. Oh, I, 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 you know, my, my dad, who's who's, been, and both my parents have been really sort of influential with kind of how I approach things. Um, and my dad's always been a big believer in 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 if you're gonna if you're going to sort of do journalism or do writing and that kind of thing, it's, it's really important, um, A, to kind of um, to be accessible and, and write, write as if you're having a chat with people and, and not, not try and kind of overcomplicate things or, or, or patronise people and that kind of stuff, but also to be absolutely accurate and not kind of, you know, make wild sweeping statements. I mean, you'll know this coming from a journalistic background. You know, you, you can't make stuff up. And so everything that you say in a book like Biophilia, which is about sort of health and well-being and stuff, I'm really keen that it's actually backed up by by evidence. Um, yeah. Because otherwise, it's just it becomes you know it's like I'm not a massive fan of fan of feng shui and and because because of that kind of reason and and I'm, I don't know enough about feng shui really to sort of say whether it has any basis in reality or not, but you know one of the problems of getting people to kind of jump on board or, or uh, well-being trends um, like biophilia is that often people can go oh it's just a load of you know new age nonsense kind of thing and actually what i want to, you know the, the point of the book is to say no it's it's not it's you know we, there is there is scientific research out there that absolutely you know makes the link between nature and health uh, and, and not in just a kind of airy fairy way so so yeah yeah how do you go about doing your research for for books in particular like biophilia who do you speak to and do you have to sort of go and visit people or how do you do it uh, I spend a lot of my day alone um and and, and because actually um uh, as as a kind of working parent and I mean there, there are lots of kind of different demands on my time so when I get to my desk it has to be, I have to work really efficiently and so a lot of the ways of, of working that I'd like to do, like going out and interviewing people and things like that, it, or you know, going and visiting places, aren't necessarily um, possible a lot of the time just because I simply haven't got the time. So I end up speaking to people on the phone a bit. Um, I have a lot of kind of um, online chats with people or email exchanges and things. But to be honest, it, you know, my life is is not that different from a kind of post grad student. Really, I, I spend a lot of time reading books and reading research papers and trawling the internet because there's just a vast amount of information out there I mean, there's a lot of kind of phd theses published online there's a lot of research data and stuff and it's just a matter of kind of trawling through it and cross-checking it and that kind of stuff so yeah it's just about being a research student really but you have to kind of pick out the bits that are interesting um and that's that's the tricky bit really 
Yeah, that must be the time-consuming bit, I'd yeah, imagine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you, you mentioned earlier about you writing a, a column monthly in Country Living, which mm. is brilliant as well. Um, I bet you've had some nice feedback from that, haven't you, over the last few months? Because I bet people have really enjoyed, you know, that the calming pages of Country Living. Do you know, it's, it's, I love doing the Country Living thing because it's a complete antithesis to the kind of hardcore research um, that I do for quite a lot of the books. Um, because it's a, it's a bit like writing a diary and I can just write about my experiences and it's a it's a it's much more kind of narrative and fluid and and I can think oh what am I going to write about today oh I'll write about you know picking blackberries or you know what what have the chickens been doing today so it's a much it's a much more freeing um kind of writing but also I've got to kind of think about oh what you know what's interesting because sometimes you, you you know I sort of think oh well people won't find that interesting that's just you know it's just what we do on a daily basis you know things like mm-hmm. putting mulch on the vegetables or whatever it is that we're doing um but actually you know people are interested in that kind of thing I, I what people do get in touch actually from the from the country living magazine and and one of the things that I've kind of people regularly get in touch with is is how is how to kind of to, to make that start and kind of start small holding because access to kind of any kind of land or where you can grow stuff seems to be getting really difficult um and so you know things like allotment schemes are getting less and less and you know the price of rural properties is going is rocketing and stuff so i don't know there's you know i think people I feel very fortunate that we kind of moved here when we did because I know that it's not difficult. I know it's not easy, sorry, for people to kind of, you know, get on that, get get into the countryside and start growing stuff. But there are some fantastic urban urban growing schemes as well, though, and you know there are ways and means. I think um, if you want to get involved, yeah, and that's again going back to the book. That's another thing you you realise that wherever you live, you can actually live that kind of lifestyle just by making a, a few small changes, can't you? You can. I mean, you know. <laughs> It would it would it would be it would be trite to sort of say oh you know you know people in a people who are living in a in a in a in abject poverty in a in a massive tower block you know should be should be getting access to lots of nature and stuff because the reality is that is it is very difficult for lots of people. However, mm. there are some amazing schemes that are going on in city centres, not just in the UK but you know in America and all over Europe and things. And and you know I do keep in touch with. Um, organizations like there's a fantastic one called um uh trees for cities and they've got they've got branches in excuse the pun um in <laughs> new york and london and things and you know that their sole aim is to just get more trees into urban centers and the effect that that has you know of, of radically transforming a street by just putting a line of trees along it is amazing um or bees i mean urban bees is a huge movement um and actually bees actually often have a a better time in urban environments than they do in in the countryside because there's such a diversity of of plants in people's gardens you know people's back gardens are much richer sources at the moment of kind of different plants than a lot of the kind of monoculture that you mono agriculture that you get in in the countryside so yeah it's there is there are lots of different opportunities it's a really exciting time I think to be in kind of urban design you know thinking of ways of of incorporating nature into into the cityscape yeah and are your girls inspired um by your work do they sort of get out into the garden and want to plant and dig 
<laughs> Whatever mummy does is always uncool. No, um, so uh, my middle, my mid, they're all so it's three girls, and my middle girl is really um, outdoorsy um, and and loves kind of being outside. And and my youngest is yeah, she's she's pretty outdoorsy, and and the oldest is not so not so much. I think. Um, I'm really keen for them to see a woman work for a start and that, that it is possible to be a mum and have a, have a career. So I'm not too bothered if they're not kind of super kind of naturey, um, as long as they're sort of interested in kind of, you know, being independent and and that kind of stuff. But actually, luckily, just because we live on the farm and, you know, there are loads of sort of things going on, I think they quite like it. Um, but you never know. Do kids are kids are always kind of interested in doing other things as well that you don't want to do, like you know they want to go to London and go on the London Eye and you know that kind of stuff rather than kind of cootle around on the farm. Yeah, roll on twenty or thirty years and they'll be happy to go for a walk. <laughs> like me, I keep, exactly, I keep saying that to myself. Do you know when you are older, you'll really appreciate this childhood? And I think, oh, get that my mum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all do it don't we so some of your books as well about um you know creating lovely interiors what's what's your own home like what's it what kind of color palette have you got there so we we bought um a, a bit of a wreck really about um 15 years ago and it's a it's a georgian farmhouse um that was basically had its kind of most of its interior ripped out. And so it's been a really interesting process kind of trying to sort of pick it back, pick it up and, and bring it back to life. Um, but we didn't have very much money when we were doing it. So um, it's full of kind of salvage materials and, you know, secondhand furniture and that kind of stuff. I, I think I'm probably quite old school when it comes to decor. I like, I like quite sort of traditional, um, sort of English kind of classic design, really. You know, um, I like sort of antiques. I like, um, um, I'm, I'm trying to kind of, it, it, it's sort of like the English country house interior, basically. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, that you sort of keep, you buy things, you buy the sort of best quality you can afford and then keep it forever, basically. So we've got a kind of lot of th- sort of hand-me-downs or things that Jim, my husband's parents have passed on to us and that kind of stuff. But it, because it's a family house, uh, you know, it constantly drives me mad because the whole thing is a mess most of the time and, and you know, paint being chipped off left, right and centre and I've got grubby handprints everywhere and things. But that's just a family home and, you know, you can't really do much about that so but I love it and I, I really you know I'm, I'm I'm such a home bird really that I, I I'm happiest when I'm there yeah it's nice that you get to work from home isn't it if you're a home bird and you've written a um a, a book about crafting um it, do you get time to do that much at home yourself no not really and if I'm if I'm if I'm brutally honest um no I don't I don't and and, and luckily that kind of part of my sort of brain is 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 used during the book. So I think I think I'd really feel a lack of doing anything crafty if if if, if work wasn't so kind of creative. And um, but I do make actually saying that I do, I, I like building things and I like restoring houses and redecorating things. So maybe that's my that's my that's my crafting fix. Yeah, the kind of you know doing it on a kind of big scale. Um, Go on, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say you're um, being a writer. Cause my dad's a, a writer, and oh, um, really, as well. And um, I often find that obviously, if you are, you're quite cerebral people. You know, you think a lot. Mm. And um, so, how do you find time to 
relax? What do you do? Um, well, do you know, in, in lockdown, I found it really difficult um, to be honest, the whole the whole the whole process has been has been quite challenging, because I'm used to spending, and I don't know if you find this, I'm used to spending most of my working day, in my own thoughts, in total peace and quiet, um, and I love it when the kids come home from school, and I love it when my husband comes home from school, and the chaos returns and the noise, because I'd hate to live on my own, and I have lived on my own, and I hated it, but but for work and just for kind of sanity, you know, I spend a lot of time just in my own head. And I found having constant companionship, although it's lovely having the kids around, has, has almost driven me to distraction. Um, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, and it's, it's really, it's a really, you feel awful as a mum. I mean, you know, I, I've had really sort of interesting conversations in my own head about, about, oh, I'm a terrible mother because I just want to actually, I want to not be with my children at this point. I want just to have peace and quiet. And, you know, and, and it's been quite difficult to kind of wrestle time away um just to kind of get some work done because I feel like I'm sort of letting them down by not kind of looking after them and things so it's been a really sort of really challenging kind of couple of months just kind of navigating my way through it really but I I mean I I know I know lots of people are feeling the same way yeah absolutely I think everybody needs a bit of me time don't Mm -hmm. they you know and and then you can give your best you can't if you're kind of feeling stressed and you know you've got too much on all the time so no I completely agree with you yeah Sorry, I was just saying, you're so right about giving your best, and about and about sometimes you've got to realise actually just kind of you you you're a better parent if you're not with your kids all the time. Um, yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the last few months has made people sort of stop and think more about sort of the beauty around them? Is that the kind of general impression that you get? Oh God, I hope I hope so. I, mm. are, do you know? On one hand, I'm super optimistic about human nature and the fact that you know humans are are such brilliant brilliant things and we're so creative and artistic and kind and caring and you know you only have to sort of see problems again like the repair shop where it's about people being kind and and it's about family and every all those kind of things and they and they really give you a boost and yet at the same time you know you kind of open a newspaper and you think oh god you know not this or you know we seem to be kind of careering towards kind of ecological or social kind of problems and and that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, I, I don't. I really, really, really hope that 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 it's all been a bit of a wake up call um, for for people that you know we need to kind of value our environment and our relationship with you know polluting companies and polluting countries and all that kind of thing needs to be kind of reassessed. But the reality is, I think that for most people, their day to day lives are so are so full on anyway that there aren't that you know you don't have that much thinking time to kind of to change things on a on a on a grand scale so I don't know I mean part of the biophilia thing is that you know if if at least you can kind of understand the relationship then maybe you can change things on a family level and a work level and then Mm -hmm. those kind of changes have a knock-on effect to bigger things yeah, it's kind of where it starts at home isn't it it must be quite rewarding to think that something you've written might change you know somebody's life even slightly I hope so I, I, it would be I mean gosh it would be it would be amazing I, I sometimes just kind of write books and, and I don't really sort of think too deeply about about sort of what their effect will be I'm just kind of I, I suppose I'm just kind of writing it because it's in my head and I want to get it down on paper but it would be so fantastic if for instance biophilia became 
a core part of any kind of, say, school environment or a work environment where, you know, just as like health and safety has to be or, or you know, regulations about toy safety, if, if, if biophilia had to be incorporated into every workspace so that people were healthy or, you know, in any kind of educational environment, that would be amazing. I can see it happening, to be honest with you. You know, it's, I think it's heading that way. I've, I know a lot of, you know, parents I've spoken to have all said that they've thought a lot more now about, you know, how they're living. And some mm-hmm. people have made some quite big changes, really, in the last few months, or they want to make some changes to how they work and maybe work at home yeah, yeah. as well from now on. Hasn't it so. been brilliant, though, to realise that, um, you know, you don't need to kind of do all this kind of commuting all the time? Um, and and that so much work can be done and really efficiently from home but you know working from home is a skill and it's you know it's not for everybody um and and people kind of need help from that and I think it's particularly difficult for women because Mm. you know especially if you've got childcare issues and and so you you can't work from home and look after kids at the same time you know I've tried it and it didn't it doesn't work no it's one or the other isn't it really you can't do both yeah so so what are you working on at the moment? Have you got uh, any more books coming? I know you've there are a couple of books that have just come out recently, aren't there? There's The World According to Sheep. Is that one? <laughs> it is. So I've, I know. It sounds like I'm just pumping books out. And, and, and it's just because they were all lined up. They've all been lined up for years. And they're just, they're kind of, they kind of, I maybe have like three three a year come out. But they tend to be about lots of different subjects. So I hope there isn't too much crossover. So yeah, um, when is it? So next month is August, isn't it? And so I've got a book called A Short History of the world according to sheep coming out and this is a this is a bit of a kind of new direction this was a book um that one of my publishers asked me to write and it's basically a kind of history it's a history of the world um and 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 how it's been affected by sheep and it sounds like it would be really boring but actually it's fascinating because it's about it's about food and fashion and crime and punishment and, you know, um, parliament and lawmaking and all these kind of things. And that basically, especially England, but all over the world, you know, pretty much the wealth of our country has been built, was built up on, on the backs of sheep. Um, mm. But there's everything from kind of, you know, how the first condoms were made from sheep intestines or that, you know, really? Yeah, and all, <laughs> all the, the lanolin has been, which is which is the grease that comes off sheep wool, has been used as a kind of beauty treatment since Roman times. Or you know, there is there's so many aspects to it, and 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 it was a massive learning curve for me while I was doing it because I didn't have a, I had no idea. Um, so yeah, but it's it's fun. It's a really kind. Of, it's like it's like a kind of funny kind of trip through history, really. Um, and I, and I kind of go all over the place really with it. So that's that's really fun. So that's coming out in August, and then is it Book of the Earthworm? Is that another one coming <laughs> yes. out? I love your titles. Thank you. So this was about. I, I write lots of these kind of little handbooks about single species. So I've done one about the hedgehog and and about bees and and stuff. And and I wanted to write one about earthworms because they seem on the face of it like they'd be really a really dull topic to write about, but actually they're kind of they're completely critical to the ecology of the world. And without earthworms, basically, we'd have no we'd have no food, we'd have no, you know, wildlife, nothing, because they're they're the engineers of the soil. And and I wanted to kind of dig a little deeper, if you'll excuse the pun, um, <laughs> into what they're doing, you know, what, what's going on underground, you know. 
do earthworms have sex? You know, why why do they why do they um, you know if you chop one in half, does it does it regrow? Does, does it? That's that's a good question. I've always wondered that myself. Well, the answer is, if you're interested, is that um, if you chop an earthworm in half, it depends where you chop it. But basically, if you if you if you chop it in half, the bottom half of it will die, and the top half that has the head will maybe be able to grow another half again. But it's it, it's not always it doesn't always happen. So so the idea that you can chop a worm in half and you get two worms is not true. And it, the worm really doesn't like it, and it may grow back a little bit of a tail, but um, but but not it doesn't necessarily. So um, mm. yeah, it's it's there's, I mean there's loads of kind of you know the questions that kids might ask like why do why do earthworms come up when it rains or you know what animals eat earthworms or what do animal what do earthworms eat all those kind of questions. So that was really fun and you know. That, 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 so that's coming out in, I don't know, November, I think. Right. And then I've got one more book coming out, and I promise I'll not bring out any more. Then. Um, oh no! Please do. <laughs> please bring out more. So, so next year, next spring, I've got a book called Floriography coming out, and that is the the magic and folklore and myth associated with fifty different flowers, and it's really the the illustration in it is beautiful i've never ever i've worked with a lady called clover which i just think is a is a clover robin oh, which is a great name what a lovely name i know and she's a she's a, a huge deal on instagram because she does these kind of beautiful paper collages um anyway so she's done these gorgeous pictures for my book and it's just about things like you know all the kind of remedies and and funny little tales and superstitions that you get associated with different kinds of plants. You know, why do we give red roses? Why do we have white flowers at funerals? You know, why are certain plants unlucky? Why are some lucky? That kind of stuff. Human nature, really. Great. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I'll look forward to that one. Um, well, thank you very much for talking I'm to me. And, by me um, rambling on. Uh, not at all I find you fascinating to be honest with you I could talk to you all day but I know you've got to work <laughs> so but thank you ever so much Sally I really appreciate it my pleasure if you'd like to see all of the books Sally's written or find out more about her work then her website is sallycoulthard.co.uk and her Instagram is sallcoulthard it's a lovely account I'm chatting next time to Dominic Chinier, one of the core experts on the fantastic BBC One's The Repair Shop. He's also a set designer and prop maker with a really fascinating career journey. So until then, have a good one. Mm-hmm.